I want to begin by reading our passage. We're just, we're marching through the book of Genesis and we're taking um, every topic as it comes. That's the beauty of expository preaching. We just, we come across uh, these passages and these topics and we just are working through them and, and God has providentially brought to the forefront for us today the topic of marriage. And we see here a glimpse, a picture of the first marriage. We're going to read about it in verse 18 all the way to the end of this chapter, here's what the Word of God says. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Now, this is a message on marriage, but I want to make something clear, maybe right out the gates. This is not a how to fix your marriage message. It's not one of those, you know, six simple steps to a healthy marriage. Although it may be, listen, it may be the most important thing for you to hear in order to help you fix your marriage, save your marriage, or maybe pursue marriage. And I'm very aware that when it comes to a topic like this, I'm, I'm sitting in a room filled with a bunch of different people with a variety of different experiences when it comes to marriage. And my prayer um, is that nobody in here uh, feels alienated or devalued in any way as we talk about such an incredibly foundational and important topic. Some of you in this room are marriage-seeking. Some of you in this room are marriage-sustaining. Some of you in this room are marriage-saving. But regardless, there is a variety of people in this room. Some of you in here are single and want to get married. Some of you in here are married and wish you were single. Some of you are enjoying a really sweet season of marriage, and some of you are just holding on for dear life. You're just trying to make it through each day. Some of you in this room have lost a spouse. Some of you are married to an unbelieving spouse. Some of you have been divorced. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you have been hurt deeply in the context of marriage. There's great variety in this room, and that's important for all of us as a family to acknowledge and to appreciate as we sit here together and talk about a topic like this. But no matter where you find yourself today, here's what I want you to hear. This message is for you. 
if you're single, this message is for you. If you're married, this message is for you. Whatever stage of life you find yourself in, this message is for you. Now, I have a little bit of an extended introduction here because I really think it's important for us to talk about marriage by contrasting it with what we see in the world, okay? So I think it's very helpful for us to look at the world's understanding of marriage and contrast it with the world, the word's understanding of marriage. In other words, it's important for us to see man's view of marriage apart from God and then look at what God actually says about marriage. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that marriage is to be honored by all. It is, in other words, an honorable relationship and an honorable institution that is actually foundational to all of life. It's foundational to all of society. It's foundational to government. It's foundational to family. And as we're going to see in our text here, it's even foundational foundational to the very mission of God. But in our culture, it's an institution that is under attack. And in many ways, it's no longer valued, and I think in our culture, it's certainly not honored. Part of the reason for this is that our our culture has an obsession with the quote-unquote right to unbridled sex. The sexual revolution has made sex, sexual expression, and sexual freedom into a God that is to be worshipped and a God that is to be protected at all costs. And as a result of that, marriage is not only irrelevant to many in our culture today, it's actually a hindrance because it gets in the way of sexual freedom and fulfillment. Um, This upcoming year, Sarah and I will celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. Yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord. She's not in here, I'll let let you know you clap for her in particular. But I'll never forget, we, we were married fairly young. We were married at the age of 21 years old. It's like a lifetime ago. And, but I'll never forget, even, even then, we're talking 20 years ago, I'll never forget the look on unbelievers' faces in particular when I, when I told them I was either getting married or I was married. Pe- people looking at men, women, you know, children, grandmas, they looked at me with utter shock, many of them. Couldn't believe what I was doing. And many of them, when, when I was like, I don't know, like, what's, what's the issue with this? So many of them said, why would you do that? There's so much more fun to be had. You, you need to go and experiment. You need to go sow your wild oats. Do you see, you see what the problem is here? The obsession of our culture is don't get tied down by marriage. It's not something to be cherished and valued. It gets in the way of experiencing true joy and fulfillment and pleasure. Is it any wonder why marriage has been on a consistent decline in our culture? A 2021 Pew Research poll stated that the relationships, living arrangements, and family life continue to evolve. A 2019 study stated that the share of adults who have lived with a romantic partner is now higher than the share who have ever been married. More adults today are delaying marriage or foregoing it altogether. Most find cohabitation acceptable. In fact, 78%, listen to this statistic, 78% of young adults between the ages of 18 to 29 years old say that cohabitation is ideal, not just acceptable. In fact, the majorities 
across age groups share this view. In Canada, 40% of marriages end in divorce. 40%. One family law website, listen to what they have posted on their website. They say this, We don't live in a world where couples of any age are expected to stay together for the sake of being married. This age-old idea can now lead to a whole host of negative consequences for both parties and especially for any children that may be involved. Another a family law site says this, it is very wise to plan as if you are going to end your marriage someday, even if you get married later in life and are most more selective about your mate. There, there seems to be not only a disparaging of marriage, but a real pessimism that rejects what was, I think, once universally believed that marriage was seen as something actually desirable and good and right. And I think that this pessimism is likely the result of this significant shift in our culture's understanding about the purpose of marriage. I mean, think about that for a minute. Why, why do we get married? How would you answer that question if somebody came up? How do you think somebody on the street, maybe who's not in a church, doesn't follow the Lord Jesus, how would they answer that question? Why, why would you get married? And I think, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us in this room would actually answer the question in, in the same way that people in the world would answer this question. And the way that they would typically answer it is, is something like this. You get married to be happy. I think that most people, they get married not to fulfill responsibilities to God or to society, but mainly for personal happiness. How many times have you heard the phrase or used the phrase, uh, men, maybe women, happy wife, happy life? You just, like, I know, we say tongue in cheek, and uh, but, but listen, do you hear that? The goal of marriage is to be happy. It's just all about your personal happiness and satisfaction. That's the goal. I love weddings, okay? Full disclosure, I love weddings, I love doing weddings, I love attending weddings, but I'll tell you this, I cringe sometimes when I hear couples give speeches, okay? This is for free. Some of you are getting married soon, okay? This is for free. Just take this to heart, please. Because, I, you know, you hear, with, with great intentions, you'll hear, you'll hear young couples, they'll give their speeches, and they'll say something like this, I promise to make you happy. And everything in me wants to scream out, no, you can't, take it back, quick. Because, because you're not God. And I don't, I don't care how charming or romantic or awesome and well-meaning you are. It's just not possible for you to make your spouse that happy. And most people find this out on their honeymoon. <laughs> but do you, know, this is, do you know what the number one justification for divorce is that I hear from people? Number one, I deserve to be happy. And just, just to be clear, I'm not saying you won't be happy in marriage, okay? Some be like, wow, this marriage sounds really rough. Like, I, I, <laughs> Listen, most of the sweetest memories I have in my life are with my wife Sarah right by my side. And that's not because we were married when we were 12. But she's not Jesus. 
She is the greatest earthly gift that God has given to me. And I'm, I'm so very aware of how much I don't deserve her. That would be an appropriate place for an amen. 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 She's not here, so I can say all this stuff and she's not going to be... <clears throat> but let me just say it again. She's not Jesus and neither is your spouse. The source of fulfillment and satisfaction for the depth of my being, listen, it must be Jesus. And if I try to make it her or she tries to make it me, uh, we place each other in this impossible position of bearing the weight and expectations that only God can bear. And that is a crushing burden of expectation on marriage and on a spouse, and it will inevitably lead to some kind of implosion. I promise you it doesn't ever lead anywhere good. Christians have to have a different approach to marriage than the world. And while unbelievers can enjoy, in the common grace of God, can enjoy good marriages, really good marriages sometimes, what we are after as Christians is more than just a good marriage, we're after a divine marriage. We're after a, a greater understanding of what marriage actually is and how it's supposed to function. We're after a divine marriage with its origins, its design and purpose firmly rooted in the God of creation, firmly grounded in the Word of God. And so I just want to ask two questions as we continue to kind of march through this passage. I want to ask two questions. First question is this, what is marriage? And then the second question is, what is marriage for? Okay. So, so first, what is marriage? And I think what we can see from this text is that everything here in this passage proclaims that marriage is a profoundly important relationship. Marriage is not some social evolution that has occurred over time. It transcends culture, and it was created by God, and therefore, it is defined by God himself. And what we see here is that Eden and this first marriage is actually the paradigm for every marriage. In the Bible's account, I want you to, to see this, God himself actually officiates the first wedding. I want you to notice as well, it's a public event. Everyone on the planet showed up to the first wedding. So, so here's what I want to do. I want to just look. I think that the definition in one sense flows out of verse 24. So let's read that again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the scriptures will help us get a more robust understanding of marriage, but let me just get a definition on the screen for us, okay? Here's where I, th I think this is a helpful definition. Marriage is a divinely blessed lifelong monogamous union between a man and a woman. And today I have to insert biological man and biological woman. But here's, here's what I want you to see from the scriptures. It's a unique partnership with a unique purpose. Let me give you another a phrase or statement that I think will be helpful in us understanding what marriage is. Marriage, in contrast with our culture, marriage in the Bible is not a consumer relationship, but a covenant relationship, okay? It, it's not about what you get primarily, it's about what you give. And the essence of a healthy, divinely ordered marriage is all about how you give yourself to another person. We're going to see that very clearly. And in verse 24, as we've already read it, what we see is that it presents to us the concept of this marriage covenant. Now you say, but I, I don't see the word covenant there. 
That's true, you don't, but you can see a covenant aspects or realities. Now, a covenant, just to be clear, is a binding relationship. It's a unique relationship. It's stronger than merely saying commitment or contract. It's much stronger than that. But what we see is the idea of covenant here in the terms that are used, okay? So, for this reason, a man shall leave, that's the first word, okay, his father and his mother and hold fast. Some translations say cleave or cling, okay? So, you have these two concepts of leaving and cleaving. Now, both of these words are used throughout the Scriptures in covenant contexts, The biblical words indicate, in other words, that people are united in this relationship through a covenant, a binding promise or an oath, and it's critically important to understand this. Listen, this is really helpful. The way that God relates to humanity is through covenants, okay? The way God himself relates to humanity is through covenants. Let me say it another way. God does not give himself intimately to anyone outside of a covenant, okay? And you're going to see this all throughout the Scriptures. This idea of covenant actually creates the backbone for the Scriptures. So, so there's covenant language when God creates Adam and Eve in terms of His relationship with them. It's like God has entered into this unique covenant with Adam and Eve, and there's blessings and curses, there's rights and privileges and responsibilities, there's obligations, but there's unique intimacy in this relationship. And what we'll see is after the fall, the idea of covenant becomes incredibly important to continue to not only foster a relationship with God, but to advance the purposes of God. So, there's this initial covenant, I think, with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then after the fall, God's going to make a covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, and He's going to give a covenant sign with the rainbow. God's going to continue to to flesh out His promises to redeem the world through covenants. Then we're going to get to uh, Genesis chapter 12 and 15, and we're going to see a covenant that God makes with Abraham promises that God makes to fulfill His plan to save the world. And then we're going to fast forward, and God's going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel in the Mosaic covenant. And then you fast forward even from there, and you see that God's going to make a covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with David, a Davidic covenant that tells us that not only is God going to redeem the world, but it's going to happen through a king. And then from there, you can read in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36 and and Jeremiah 31, that God promises that He's going to bring about a new covenant. He's going to give us new hearts. His Spirit is going to be placed within His people to have unique relationship with Him. And that's ultimately going to find its fulfillment when Jesus Christ comes and dies in our place, risen from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father. God establishes through the death and resurrection of Christ a new and eternal covenant with His people. Covenants are so important. That's what I'm trying to say to you. There's a seriousness here. And some people think, you know, that that rings, you know, when we have a wedding ceremony that rings and the ceremony itself, they're just some kind of a a cultural thing. They're not necessary. Uh, Here's what I would say to that. The, The manifestation of it and different elements are certainly cultural. But the essence of it has always existed. There is in this marriage covenant a binding legal 
intimate and public relationship that you actually went into that is exclusive and lifelong. That's the intent. And it's ratified by symbolic means. So what we do at a wedding ceremony, right, is after the vows are said, we seal the vows. That's the language we use by taking a ring, Okay? And the, the ring actually has symbolic value and meaning to it. Um, it's round, showing this unending love that we're supposed to be expressing to one another. It's made of precious metal. Mine the most precious of all, silicone. <laughs> and I, have a, I have a legit ring as well. But, but, it, but the idea is it's valuable. It's precious. And, and more than that, I, one of the things that's so symbolic and significant is, is we take these rings and what do we do? We place them on the finger of our new spouse. And, and the idea is this, I am giving myself wholly to you, okay? You see that? Like there's, this, there's this precious symbolism that's embedded even in the concept of a ring. And every time you look at this ring, and every time somebody else looks at this ring, one of the things they're thinking is, man, they liked it and they put a ring on it. That's one. And two, okay, the second thing is, man, they're serious. They're serious about this relationship. This is not a trivial thing. And every time, listen, if you're married in here today, every time you look at that ring, you ought to be thinking, this is the most serious of relationships I could possibly have. It's the most important human relationship I could possibly have. This covenantal relationship is both vertical and horizontal. And I want to just show you the language. By the way, you're like, well, it doesn't say covenant in that passage. You're right, but other passages in the scripture, guess how they refer to marriage? as a covenant. Listen to what Malachi 2.14 says. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife, look at that language, by covenant. Let me give you one more, Proverbs 2.16 and 17. In the context of fleeing adultery, it says this, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So you see, listen, here's what I'm trying to show you. Not only is this a covenant horizontally with you and another person, this is a covenant with God involved. That's how serious this is. The covenant relationship is horizontal and vertical. The covenant between a husband and wife is made before God and with him as well. So, in other words, to break faith with your spouse is ultimately to break faith with God. This is why the vows at a, a wedding are so, so important. They're very serious. They're not to be trifled with. Your vows are a statement of entering into this covenant. You're making a binding public vow, a commitment to another person that has an enormous act of love attached to it. God knows that relationships can't just be based on emotion. They must be based on a deeper kind of commitment, a covenant commitment, a binding agreement that produces the kind of support structure and protection for intimacy to thrive in the context of a marriage relationship. And if it's not based on covenant, you want, here's the problem. It's going to be based on something else that's lesser and unstable. It'll be based on something like your spouse's performance, which is up and down. It's going to be based on your own personal feelings towards your spouse, which in times and seasons of life and marriage are up and down. 
and they won't be able to sustain the marriage. But covenant sustains marriages and at least has the potential to. You'll often hear people say things like, I don't need a piece of paper to show you that I love you. You hear that? In our culture, that's very common. I don't need to get married. I don't need the the legal document to show you that I really love you. Who cares about that? This is based upon the assumption, listen, that love is simply a feeling. It's a romantic passion. Or it's simply affection for somebody. But when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it not primarily by how much you want to receive, but by how much you're willing to give yourself to someone. How much are you willing to sacrifice? That's the the question the Bible asks when it comes to your love. How much freedom and independence are you willing to give up? So you see, when somebody disparages the piece of paper, the legal reality of marriage, they actually disparage marriage itself. And it's not an expression, think about this, it's not an expression of how much they love you, but how much they love themselves. Because here's what they're saying, I don't love you enough to close off all other options, to give myself to you completely, to commit commit myself to you permanently. You see, making it legal, that piece of paper doesn't make it less intimate, it actually makes it more intimate. And your wedding vows, they're not a declaration, by the way. Do you realize this? It's not a declaration of your present love, but your future love. You ever think about that? What are you promising your spouse? I promise to love you, right, in sickness and in health, richer or poorer, right, till death do us part. You see, you're looking down the road, and you're saying, listen, I know that life could get really hard. I know we could experience an incredible amount of suffering and tragedy and trial in this life, but I'm saying to you, I am with you to the very end. The marriage relationship entails a leaving behind of all other loyalties. You leave your father and mother, right? And, you, know, you can still have a relationship with them. Some of you are like, yeah, we need to cut that off. <laughs> But the idea is this, you start something new and more precious. You start it and you build it with a binding covenant. I want to just really quickly answer one question, cultural question. What what about so-called gay marriage? Because let's be honest, this is a reality that we all face in this world. Um, our, and I just I want to say this, just out the gates, there, there are times where our government says certain things are legal, right, and good that the Bible actually says are wrong, sinful, and immoral. One of the things we must embrace as Christians is that monogamous, heterosexual marriage between a biological man and a biological woman was always viewed as the divine norm from the creation, from the outset of creation. Now, listen, there are segments of the church that argue for the legitimacy of monogamous homosexual relationships as a proper expression of a love between uh, two men or two women. And I just, I want to be clear on this. I want to be gracious, but I want to be very clear. This is an impossible position to argue on the basis of Scripture. Impossible. The fact that the first couple are male and female and that this is necessary to carry out the divine mandate to be fruitful and multiply automatically sets homosexual relationships outside the bounds of what is normative for marriage. 
Plus, I'm just add to that, all of the references to homosexuality and homosexual relationships in the Bible are negative. There are many who argue for homosexuality who have actually abandoned Scripture as their ultimate authority and have substituted in its place something else, like human experience or their own definition of human love as their highest authority. And as Christians, listen, we cannot support or celebrate, but we can love, I'll add this, we can love those who who do by showing them the beauty of Christ, the truth of God's word, and the grace of the gospel that forgives and redeems all who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. Amen? We, I just want to say this too, you know, I hope we would be a church that welcomes people through these doors in order to show them that love of Christ and the truth of God's word. All right, that's the first question. You may be getting the impression that this is going to be a long sermon. Um, you would be right. So <laughs> let's, let's ask the second question. What is marriage for? What is marriage for? God wants us to understand the seriousness of marriage That's the covenant piece. And then he wants us to understand the substance of marriage. And the substance really tells us what the marriage is for, its priorities, its privileges, and its purpose. And this is incredibly important. And we see this throughout the rest of this passage. Let me just show you first. What's marriage for? Well, it's for one thing. It's for enjoying deep friendship. Now, look again at verse 18 with me. So then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I want you just to consider this for a moment, okay? So we've gone through the creation account, and remember, God has just stopped after every day, and what does God do? He looks at his creation, and he declares that it is good. And then he gets to the kind of conclusion of his creative act. He looks at all of his creative activity, and he declares it is very good. And this is the first time in the Bible that God looks at something and says, it is not good. There's there's something that's not quite complete. There's something that needs to be addressed. And then we're given this kind of a, a picture of Adam. You can imagine him in the garden all by himself in verse 18 there, and look at what he's doing. He, he's, he's naming all of the animals, right? This, so here's, here's his task. He's fulfilling the creation mandate from chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, to take dominion over the earth. One of the ways that dominion is expressed is that Adam takes authority over creation by giving names to the animals as part of how authority was expressed in the ancient world. It's like Adam is the king, ruling on behalf of King Yahweh. And so he's naming all of these animals, and I don't know what that looked like, right? I don't know if God walked him through like a little zoo area. I don't know if, you know, he paraded them in front of him, and here he is, he's naming them, you know, uh, giraffe, that sounds good, uh, zebra, uh, elephant, rhinoceros, hippopotamus. And, and you know, he, I, I don't know how long this took, but here he is, he's naming all these animals, and he's noticing something. They, they all have something in common. They, they've got partners. They've got things that are like them. So naming the animals fulfills this God-ordained role given to to mankind, but it also, it's teaching Adam something. It's teaching Adam that he needs a companion too. For the first time, let me say it again, in in all of the creation account and, and in the Bible, there is something that's declared to be not good. 
You may have heard people say things like this, all I need is God, right? All I need is God. Or, or I've heard single people say this, no offense if this has been you in the past, but you need to hear this. Single people say, well, Jesus is my husband. No, he's not. Jesus has one bride. It's the church. He's not polygamous, okay? You don't get, you don't get Jesus as your husband. He, his bride is the church. It's the people of God collectively, corporately. You don't get him individually as a spouse. But people say things like this all the time. And, and what I, I get the sentiment. They're trying to say, like, look, I don't need to be married to be fulfilled or satisfied, which, by the way, is absolutely true. But it's interesting, I think sometimes we overstate things. So we say, all all I need is God, that's all I need. But the problem is, as we look at this text, that's not what God said. Do you notice that? It's not good for the man to be alone. The creation account implies that our intense relational capacity created and given to us by God was not fulfilled completely by our vertical relationship with him. In other words, God's designed us to actually need horizontal relationships with other human beings. God has created human life to have fellowship with him, but also to be a social entity, building relationships with other human beings. Isolation is not the divine norm for human beings. Community is actually the creation of God. And I think at least part of the reason is that because this actually is some kind of a reflection of God himself who exists as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect relational harmony. In other words, think of it like this. God is actually the definition of community. And in so some small way, humanity is, is mimicking and mirroring God to the world through their relational need. Human beings are made for community. So let me say it again. I don't want anybody to misunderstand this. That does not mean you have to get married. If it did, Jesus and Paul would be in big trouble. There have been many followers of Jesus Christ throughout the years who have been single and practiced a life of singleness. It can actually, according to the scriptures, be a divinely ordained way to live. It's not going to be the norm for most of humanity, but for many it will be. But but if you're single or married, here's what you need to understand. You and I were made to be in relationships. We were created for community. And one of the main ways to experience that is actually in the context of marriage. And so here's Adam. There's no match for Adam in the animal world. He feels this, this aloneness, this intense longing for a companion, someone like him. And so what does God do? Well, we, we read about it. God forms from Adam's rib a companion. He puts Adam into this deep sleep. He takes out a rib and stitches him back up. And he begins to craft and mold this woman named Eve. Adam wakes up and and he looks at this woman and and the the term here is, by the way, there's no helper found for him. You see that language? The Hebrew word there is this word edzer. And it actually means a helper companion. It's a friend. And and so when the man, when when Adam sees the woman, he responds in, in poetry. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Right? She was taken from me. 
some people see this, this idea of Adam's words saying or meaning something like this, meeting you fulfills some kind of a void in me. You know, Jerry Maguire, you complete me. It's biblical. <laughs> we see this in Adam's response when the woman is brought to him, right? In essence, you know what Adam, look, look, look at it again. Look at the first words. This at last. It's like Adam's like, finally, God. Finally, some, something for me, someone for me to, to do life with, to enjoy community with and relationship with. I, I now have a friend. He names her woman, Esau, because she was taken out of man, Ish. She, she is literally part of him, from him. I love, I love the, the book, Song of Solomon, and I, I love this verse in, in chapter 5, verse 16. I'll put it on the screen. Listen to what it says. His mouth is most sweet, and, is, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this, look at this, is my friend. For you to walk through life with your best friend, the one who, who knows you better than anybody, is a precious thing. To know and to be known is a powerful thing. To have a sense of vulnerability with another person and transparency. And, and for some of us, even that language, it scares us to death. We're terrified of being known to, to the depth of our soul for who we truly are. Right? We, we start to think, if they really know me, if they know who I actually am with all of my warts and wrinkles, with all of my you know, blemishes and faults and flaws and sin and past baggage and all of the, the garbage in my life, like, are, they, are they actually going to be able to love me? But you see, marriage is designed to smash that lie to bits into a million little pieces. Because in marriage, you are giving yourself so fully to somebody that the objective is, is to be fully known and in the process to be fully loved. My wife knows every one of my character defects, and I promise you that is no small list. 20 years in almost, and she still wants to go on a date with me, spend time with me, and do life with me. There's a constancy to our friendship, and it's had ebbs and flows over the years. There's no doubt about that, but, but Proverbs 17, 17 reminds us that a friend loves at all times. There's constancy and stability. And so here's what this means, okay? Let me, let me apply this a little bit for us. If, if, if you're here today and you're single, let me just apply this to you. If you're looking for a spouse, spouse you should be looking for a friend, okay? Some of you youth in here, Right? You're getting to that age or you're starting to think about relationships. Just hear this right now. You should be looking for a friend. Friendship, let me say this, should trump physical attraction. <gasps> now listen, I'm not downplaying the importance of physical attraction, okay? I, I, I think Adam, like when he woke up and looked at Eve, I think his jaw hit the floor. I think he was like, uh, whoa, like... Way to go, God. You saved the best for last. I have, there's no doubt in my mind there's a physical attraction there. So I'm not downplaying that at all. To be fair, Adam didn't have much to compare it to yet. So there's that too. <laughs> uh, let me say this. Physical attraction, listen, phys physical beauty is not unimportant, but it's not all important. Okay? And here's the reality. Beauty fades. Right? I had to shave the mustache because I kept looking in the mirror thinking, this is not helping. 
I didn't like that response one bit. <laughs> I'm growing it next week now. <clears throat> but if you're single, I, I remember I had, I had a seminary professor who is a preacher, and he was awesome in seminary. But I remember the first, one of the first classes I had with him as a young seminary student. You know, in seminary, you, you know, a lot of guys go, and, and part of the objective is like, hey, I need a ring by spring, right? Like, we're getting married here. That's the goal. And I'll never forget this professor saying, listen, some of you guys, you know, 30% of you guys are single. And he's like, I'm just going to tell you straight up, here's some of your problem. You're looking for a 10. That's what you want. You want a 10? You know, at this time, he says, you want Jessica Simpson? He's Hispanic, and he had this real awesome accent. So you want a Jessica Simpson? He's like, but look in the mirror. You're a five. <laughs> look, look for a friend. And if you're married, let me, just, let me just ask you this. Is your spouse your closest friend? Not your only friend, but are they your, your closest friend? Are they the person you're most transparent with, most vulnerable with, you're most open with? Are you cultivating a friendship that is based on a life that is being shared completely? Some of you, you're unmarried and you're staying that way. Great. And, and you're fine with it. Strive to live in the body of Christ with deep friendships that are life-giving to your soul. God has designed us for this kind of friendship. Secondly, what is marriage for? It's for experiencing meaningful intimacy. Meaningful intimacy. And I want to just show you here how this passage ends first. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. There's no sin yet. No sin to distort the way people objectify one another, the way they abuse one another, the way they hurt one another, physically, emotionally, or sexually. There's this freedom and, and ability to give themselves fully to one another. And the implication here of, of being one flesh in verse 24 and the being naked and unashamed, it, it's this expression of, of a, a meaningful kind of intimacy that is precious and to be enjoyed in the context of the marriage covenant. Let me say it like this very clearly. Um, intimacy is not only sex, but sex is a massive part of intimacy. Sex is designed to be enjoyed only within the context of the marriage covenant. It is the very means by which the covenant itself is ratified or consummated. I'll say this as well. This is very important to understand. Sex is not necessary for experiencing a fulfilled life. But I want to be clear on this because the Bible is so clear on this. Any sexual activity outside of marriage, the Bible says is sin. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. If you're having sex or fooling around with somebody and you're not married, listen, the Bible is very clear on this. It is destructive behavior. It is dishonoring to God. It brings reproach upon the name of Christ. It does not lead to a healthy relationship with God or the person that you are engaging with. It is reserved entirely for marriage. Let me be quick to add that it is sin that must be forsaken, but it is sin like all other sins that can be forgiven. Some of us have deep shame 
associated with a, a, a past life of sin or maybe even present sin you're struggling with, uh, sexual immorality of some sort, and it, it, it just, you feel a huge sense of condemnation and shame and guilt. And listen, here's what I need to say to you. For some of you, you need that shame and guilt to lead you to the right place, okay? You need the conviction of the Spirit of God to bring you to a place of genuine repentance before God. You need to be freed from this burden and weight and guilt and shame, and only Jesus can truly do that for you. Only Jesus, listen, can die in your place for your sins, sexual sin and all other sin. Only Jesus can stand in your place and take the wrath that you and I deserve because of all of our sin. Only Jesus can conquer sin and death. Only Jesus can save, rescue, and restore us back into a right relationship with God. Amen? Amen. And there's freedom in Christ. And what God calls you to, if you're struggling in this area, you've got a past, you just, you're just wrestling through and it wrecks you so often. God says, come to the, the foot of the cross and receive grace and mercy, forgiveness and freedom. I got better for you. I got a better life for you through the power of the Spirit of God. It's a precious gift that God wants to give to you. He can cleanse you from all your sins. He can make you white as snow. Sex is the deepest form of intimacy in marriage. But it depicts something broader than that. And we need to kind of think about this for a moment. It depicts ultimately what the entire relationship is supposed to look like. It depicts the the one flesh relationship in a very profound way. You see, the idea is that you are giving yourself fully and freely to your spouse. And sex is one of the most intimate ways you do that. But it becomes a picture for all of your marriage. You're transparent and vulnerable, and what happens in those moments is a picture for what all the rest of your life together is supposed to look like. A one flesh is essential to the biblical view of marriage. Here's, here's how um, one author puts it, uh, Ray Ortland. I'll put it on the screen. This is so good. He says, one flesh is essential to the biblical view of marriage. It means one mortal life fully shared. Two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us. Sharing one everything, one life, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, one mission, and so forth. No barriers, no hiding, no aloofness. Now, total openness with total sharing and total solidarity until death departs them. That's marriage. That's oneness. It's beautiful. Praise God. And then, you know what's interesting? Jesus actually takes us into a deeper level here when he quotes from this in Matthew 19, verse 6. He quotes from Genesis 2.24, and here's what he says. He he explains that behind the words, become one flesh, uh, Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, in other words, the one flesh is the joining together of God. And the Apostle Paul, let me just take you into another level here. He quotes from Genesis 2.24 to take our understanding a step further. And this is an amazing step. He says this in Ephesians 5, verse 30 and 31. He says, we are members of Christ's body. He's speaking to the church. We're part of the church of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says to you. You're all members of the church of Jesus Christ. We're members of Christ's body. Therefore... And he quotes Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now listen, notice his logic here. We are members of Christ's body. 
Church, listen to this. He loved us. He chose us. He gave himself for us. He will present us someday in splendor. We are united with Christ now and forevermore. Therefore, listen, our union with Christ is the reason why a man and a woman get married and live under, united as one flesh together. Human marriages, in other words, are a miniature social platforms on which the gospel is actually to be displayed. So intimacy in the relationship was actually designed by God from the beginning, knowing that redemption was going to be necessary, that Jesus was going to come and save humanity, that they would be united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus, or God knew that marriage and the intimacy experience was ultimately going to point to, listen, a deeper kind of intimacy that God longs to enjoy with redeemed people like you and me. That oneness points to the oneness that we are called into in the gospel. Marriage is more than a human romance, and as wonderful as that is, it's more. It's more than a close friendship, as awesome as that is. Marriage is it's for experiencing meaningful intimacy that displays Christ and his bride in love together. And so that means that a beautiful, tender, thriving marriage makes the gospel visible on earth. Bringing hope to people who have given up believing there could be any love anywhere for them. Do you see that? You see, the gospel is being put on display because here are two people saying, I'm going to commit myself to you and love you and accept you and live life with you in a oneness relationship. And it's pointing people to this reality that there is a God who knows all of our sin all of our garbage, all of our rebellion and resistance and rejection of him. And he looks at us, even though, listen, we lived in an adulterous relationship with him because we've loved the world. And he says this, I'm going to shower my love upon you. I'm going to forgive you and save you. And I'm going to bring you into a union with me. And how am I going to do it? I'm going to love you so much. I'm going to give myself completely, not just to you, but for you. Lastly, what is marriage for? It's for engaging a common mission. Engaging a common mission. Adam was in the garden, and he was beginning to fulfill the mission to take dominion. We've already looked at at, at what God called Adam to, to work and keep the garden, to take care of it, to expand it across the the globe, but one thing is essential here, verse 18, let me circle back to that and end on this note. Verse 18, we're reminded that Adam cannot do this job alone. He was never in, intended to, he was never designed to. God knew from the beginning that Adam was, was not going to have all of the necessary skills and giftedness and abilities to complete the task. And so what does he do? He brings about a helper, that Ezer word, in order to help Adam accomplish the mission that God had given to him. He gives him Eve. And again, this, this, this word helper is not a condescending term. It's, it's not devaluing women. It doesn't mean they're lesser in any way. In fact, the very term is used in the sense of aid and support. It's used actually of the Lord aiding his people in the face of their enemies. 
Moses spoke of God as his helper who delivered him from Pharaoh in Exodus 18.4. It's often associated with God being a shield, a protective care for his people. God gives to Adam a helper that is suitable, someone who is equal in dignity, in value, and in worth, but someone who is uniquely different from him And that will be incredibly important in them working together to accomplish what God has given to them. All healthy marriages are built on a calling. If the point of your marriage is your marriage, it will eventually collapse in on itself. Over time, it's just going to self-destruct. You can only just sit there and stare lovingly into each other's eyes for so long. At some point, you have to do something. At some point, you have to realize that if you're in Christ today, God is calling you to do something in your marriage, through your marriage. Men and women are equal and yet different. And there are glimpses of that in this passage. It's seen in the creative differences between male and female. God made them differently. He made them from different stuff. In our world, let me just say this, our world right now, many despise the differences between men and women. In our world, they do everything possible to flatten the differences. They want you to believe men and women are exactly the same. There's no distinction. There's no difference. But God says that those distinctions and differences are actually good and beautiful. And when understood and applied, they lead to a much more fulfilling life and a much more prosperous marriage. Our differences as men and women, as husbands and wives, are given as gifts for the mutual benefit of one another and the advancement of God's purposes. There are leadership aspects to what God has given men to do in both the family and in the church. Adam was called to to take some kind of a leadership role and Eve was called to follow him in some regards. Adam was called to be the main provider and protector. Eve was the only one called to give birth to children. Contrary to what our world says, men cannot have babies. God has built us differently, but he's built us to complement one another. But I want you just to see, we're not going into all those details, and I want to end on this idea. Marriage is a means to an end. Most of us don't think this way. But divine marriage actually exists for something far larger than itself. And this side of the cross, we know that it's actually designed to point people to the gospel and to advance the Great Commission by making disciples in whatever context God places you. That's your job as as a couple if you're married. And regardless of all the, the specifics, your calling is to live for God in His glory. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And if you're single in here today, listen, don't marry someone who shows little to no interest in God or the kingdom of God. Don't do it. Don't waste your time. Some of your marriages may be struggling because you've become far too busy building your own kingdoms, your careers, your family, your hobbies, maybe even your ministries, and it's time to recalibrate your marriage together. You see, marriage is intended by God to be a partnership in pursuit of God and his kingdom. And if you're married today, I just want to give you three really quick things to do if you're not doing them already. You're like, how do I recalibrate? Just three quick things, okay? It's very, very simple, very simple 
First is this, pray together. Pray together. You'd be surprised how many couples don't pray together. I just, look, at night, before you go to sleep, take 30 seconds or a minute and just pray together. Secondly, read together. Just, just read the Bible. It's just a starting place. Just open the Bible in the morning together and just read a psalm. Here's the third thing. Just spend time together. If you don't spend time together, there's no way, there's no way you're going to get on the same page and, and grab a hold of the same mission and start working together to accomplish what God is calling you to. And as we look at this, the, the beauty and oneness of marriage are demonstrated in that final verse, verse 25. They were, they were naked and they were not ashamed, right? And, and here's how the chapter ends, right? The man and his wife, they lived together in complete harmony and they lived happily ever after the end. Roll the credits. Except that's not at all what happens. It doesn't take very long for sin to enter the picture and destroy what God created beautiful and good. Divine marriage was broken, but it was not lost. And God, in his kindness, says that every marriage, listen, in a fallen world is a reminder of the kind of friendship, intimacy, and redemption that he provides to fallen people like you and me. Marriage reminds us that God is redeeming for himself a bride who will enjoy the blessing of his love and grace in an eternal, unadulterated union with him. The primary goal of divine marriage is not financial stability, it's not social status, it's not sexual fulfillment, it's not emotional happiness. It is to demonstrate how all of creation is being made new as it is brought under total subjection to Jesus Christ. The purpose of every marriage is to point us to the ultimate marriage. When our king returns for his bride and together with unending joy, we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb.